0: You might hear people talking today about the times in which we live as being postmodern or even post Christian. I think those terms actually are probably out of date. Things have gone so rapidly away from those terms uh, that they seem, well, they seem to be something of the distant past. But when those supposedly clever terms were used, they were but a tragic reflection upon the worldview of those around us. One of the marks of this Western age is that in the minds of some, there are no absolute truths. Truth is only such in a given culture, language, and time. In other words, something can be true for you without being true for me. Truth is a context, and again, it can vary from person to person and place to place. We could say with the Apostle Paul, Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? You see, this postmodern idea of no absolute truth must, by implication, deny the Bible in its entirety. You cannot have the Bible as part of postmodern thought. They they would like us to have that. The postmodernists would quite happily say, Well, you want your Bible? You have your Bible. But our Bible cannot exist in a postmodern world. For the Bible claims to be absolute truth. And you cannot have absolute truth when the very concept of absolute truth is denied. Of course, there's nothing new under the sun. And we find Pilate expressing the postmodern mindset in question in the question of uh, verse number 38, where he saith, What is truth? He's really saying. How can you know what is true? Again, you think of how uh, the language of that age, and you go back to the Greek world, and revealed in Acts chapter 17, where there is all manner of gods, including the unknown God, how can you know what is true? Well, of course, the setting of this question is the trial of Christ. The Jews, they bring an accusation to Pilate, claiming that he is the king. Pilate asked the question, verse number 33, Art thou the king of the Jews? And of course, that is the great concern when it comes to to Pilate. Has he a usurper on his hands? Has he one who is seeking to overthrow his earthly kingdom? Well, the Lord deals with that issue in verse number 36. My kingdom is not this world. The Lord's agenda is not to overthrow the authorities at that time. Of course, the idea of Christ coming as a king was just a device that the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests were using to bring Christ to this Roman trial. Their concern, of course, was that he claims to be God and Messiah. Chapter 19 of John, the verse number 7 We have our, our law, a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When they realized, Uh, that the accusation of his kingly claim was not going to do the job, they then make it clear that by their law he ought to die. And Pilate, of course, verse 8, is all the more afraid. Of course, the Son of God, God incarnate, is indeed King. He is King. He's Son of God. He's Messiah. He's all of those things. But Pilate's concern, going back to verse number 33 of the chapter 18, is, well, are thou the King of the Jews? Now, the Lord doesn't deny this. But he states that his kingdom is of another world. To which Pilate then asks the question, verse number 37, Well, art thou a king then? What sort of king are you? But you claim to be a king of some form. To which point the Lord then gives this revealing answer. Revealing a reason, one of the reasons for him coming into the world. Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. That's a strange sort of answer. Are you king? I came to reveal truth. So how do you put those things together? Well, the Lord is saying that He does not come to establish an earthly kingdom, but to witness to the truth. And in so doing, to bring together a kingdom under the truth. He's making the claim that all kingdoms of this world are based upon lies. Man's prominence, worldly thinking, they're all unstable. But his kingdom alone is the kingdom that can be said to be the singular kingdom of truth. And so surely it ought to concern us. Within our very conscience, we do not want to believe a lie. We find in our conscience lies abhorrent. We may find telling lies easy, but when people lie against us, we find that grievous. Within our very conscience, there's a the recognition that truth is good and truth is right. And if truth is good and truth is right, then it ought to concern us about the most important truth of all. The truth of life and death, the kingdom that is to come. We ought to be burdened to know, what is this true kingdom? The Lord tells us that he himself came to bear witness to this truth. And he does so in several ways. I'm going to go through this very, very quickly uh, this afternoon. First of all, he bears witness to the truth in that he is truth incarnate in his person. Truth incarnate in his person. Back in John chapter 14. This is a verse, of course, you know well, but I'm understanding. You've had lunch, dessert, sugar. You know where I'm going with this. It might help you to have your Bible out and to actually turn to references. When you're moving your hands, you're less likely to be dozy. And so John chapter 14, the verse number 6, Christ himself does not only claim to reveal truth and to witness to truth. We'll come to that. But he claims to be truth incarnate. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth. Again, I ask your brother Jim to read John chapter 1, and the verse number 14, where you have this, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you folks are well enough taught, you understand, that when the I am's are referred to in John's gospel, they are the Lord himself claiming to be God. John chapter 8, before Abraham, was I am. And the Jews understood what that meant. And they took stones to kill him for blasphemy. And so when he says, I am the truth, he is saying, in essence, I am God manifest in the flesh. Once more, I make it clear, you cannot deny the deity of Christ and still be a Christian. The Lord claims to be God in flesh, to be the Amen incarnate. One of the terms for the Lord in the Old Testament was the Amen, the true and living God. And Christ is saying, I am God incarnate. He is the true God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are judgment. A God of truth. And without iniquity, Deuteronomy chapter 32 So when we read the Lord's claims to bear witness of truth, he does so infallibly as truth. You've got to put it together. If I tell you I bear witness of truth, well, you can believe me as long as I teach the Bible as truth, but I'm not inventing or imagining anything new. I'm simply repeating the truth of God's word. But Christ comes with the authority to give direct revelation as the very Son of God, as truth incarnate, as God incarnate. He is truth. Hence, secondly, He is truth in His role as prophet of God. But with an authority above any earthly prophet. All that He says is true. Remember, of course, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there was the prophecy that God would raise up unto the people of God a prophet from the midst of them, like unto Moses. We know that, John chapter 18, in the verse number 30. I'm sorry, leave that reference. I'm just thinking about the, the verily here. And so Pilate says, what is truth? And Christ is the one who, in verse number 37, sorry, this one, verse 37, I should bear witness unto the truth. It is a sense of a prophetic voice. Verse 37, heareth my voice. And so, Deuteronomy 18 it said unto him, Ye shall hearken. And so now in verse 37, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. A prophet speaking truth. You will note, of course, that in the language of the Gospels, we find the Lord often using the term verily, amen, truly. He precedes his statements often with the claim, That he's bringing words that come with absolute truth. Let's just notice a few references in John. John chapter 1 and the verse 51. I'm just showing examples here whereby we see the Lord in this claim to be speaking truth. John 1, 51. Verily, verily, I say unto you hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What's he claiming here? He's claiming to have the absolute authority to interpret the Old Testament pictures. Moses or Jacob, seeing the ladder and the angels of God ascending and descending, and Christ himself claiming to be the mediator, the one who reconciles God to man. You know, Jesus is saying here, I am the only way to God. John 14 again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. One of the things that happens in so many of the liberal churches is they make the claim to respect the Lord's teaching. But at the same point, they suggest that he's not true in what he says. You don't really want a teacher who consistently is untrue. The Lord is claiming here to be the only way to God, the one who can intercede and reconcile God to man. John chapter 3, verse number 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God to which, again, the world around us says, I don't need born again. All this born again Christianity stuff, that's nonsense. I have no need for that. And what they're saying is, they're saying the Lord Jesus, who said, verily, verily, is a liar. The Lord says, you must be born again. Therefore, you must be born again. John chapter 5, and the verse number 24. John 5, and the verse number 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. What's he saying here? He's saying that life is only found in believing in the words of Christ Jesus. I'm just, I'm just making the point. I'm adding up the evidence here that you have a man Jesus here claiming absolute true authority, and his claim is either true or false. You cannot have a respect for Christ without accepting his claim of absolute truth. One other reference: John chapter twelve. After this, we'll move on. John chapter twelve and the verse twenty-four. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except the corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. The Lord is here speaking about his death. He's giving a proof that he will indeed die. You've got verse number 30, 33 signifying what death he should die. He's going to be lifted up from the earth, verse number 32. He's going to die, verse 24, lifting up from the earth, verse 32. You know you put it together. The crucifixion is an evidence of Christ's truthfulness. He claimed to know that he would die by crucifixion. And he says so, verse 24, verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say unto you. We have here one claiming absolute truth. You know, there was a test in the Old Testament. If a prophet made a prediction or made a claim of something in the future, and if they were proven to be wrong, they were proven, it's very obvious that they were a false prophet. But every single word of Christ is true. And no one can ever say he's a false prophet. His words are true. But thirdly, He is truth in that He secures the promises of God. And again, we're looking at the reason. Why does Christ come into the world? To bear witness unto the truth. And we know that He comes to make good all the promises of God. Again, this idea, the Lord saying, I am the way, the truth, takes us back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God says He is the God of truth. And part of that language, I'm not going to turn you back to the references, but part of that language speaks of God's promises. Truthfulness is not only saying factually accurate statements. Two plus two is four, that's true. But it's also keeping your word. Being truthful is being a man of your word, a woman of your word. And so when it says God is true, it does not only mean that God always reveals factually accurate statements, but it means He keeps His words. And when Christ comes as the truth of God, He comes to secure every promise of God's. We know that, don't we? 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, All the promises of God in Him are, yea, and in Him, amen, are true unto the glory of God's. Christ As he brings truth to bear to your minds, reveals truth, secures the promises of God, and shows those promises to be true. His blood is the blood of the everlasting covenant. And the covenant promises are secured by the seal of his blood. If Christ is not true today, dear child of God, there may always be the little doubt in your mind. He will not bring you all the way home. You're not yet saved in the sense we saw this morning. You haven't known the fullness of redemption yet. You're not resurrected in an incorruptible humanity. There's still things yet to do. And if Christ is not reliable, well, perhaps God will count your sins against you. Perhaps you will not be resurrected in the last day. Perhaps these things will come to pass. But I tell you, He is true and there's no shadow of a doubt regarding the finality of your redemption. You can trust Him fully. He was true in the Gospels. He is true today, and He'll be true forevermore, because He comes as one who is truth incarnate, securing the promises of God. We saw this morning in John chapter 6, All the Father giveth shall come to me, I will lose nothing. He is the true God. Fourthly, he displays truth as he suffers according to truth in his passion, and his sufferings. You know, when you read John chapter 18, John 19, we saw this in our slides and look. It's the injustice of the Lord's death. You're meant to feel that way. This says, Well, he he did no sin. The the pilot continually says, I find no fault in him. And you read this, you say, Well, he came to bear witness to truth. And he subjects himself to this awful lie of a false trial. And he does so willingly. How can one who is truth willingly consent to such a false trial? It's perplexing, at least it is to me. But you see, the answer is found in the fact that whilst the Lord's trial is false, the crucifixion is true. The Lord in His death suffers in truth. There is no injustice in God's dealing with His Son upon the cross. You think of Galatians chapter 3, the language of curse. The one who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. Well, that implies that in the cross, Christ is cursed of God. But that curse is either true or false. God either truly curses the Son or falsely curses the Son. But He does so in truth, of course, because Christ bears our sins on the cross. As you turn back to the Psalm 85, please, you have this intriguing reference in Psalm 85 to Calvary, in a way that doesn't immediately come to light unless you think it through carefully. But in Psalm 85, in the verse number 10, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You say, well, when, how, how does this come to pass? Well, it suggests to us that the mercy of God that we enjoy is not an unjust mercy. You see, injustice is not true. You get someone because someone's someone sentenced to life imprisonment for a crime they did not commit. That's not truth. That's injustice. It's not truth. But Christ's death is true. Mercy and truth meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss on the cross. Because God in justice and in righteousness and in truth placed upon Christ the punishment that he deserves. Not for his sins, but for our sins. These things are familiar, but the cross is not a denial of truth. The cross actually is an evidence of the truth of the gospel. Justice is satisfied, and sinners are saved by the mercy of God. Fourthly, then, Christ bears witness to truth because he also works truth, gathering together a people marked by truth. Look at the language of verse number 37 again of John 18. Just back to our text one last time, and this will close. He comes to bear witness unto the truth, and then he says, This everyone that is off the truth heareth my voice. Now, here I bring you back the thought of kingdom. Are you a king? Well, not of this world, but I have subjects who are off this world, but those subjects. Well, they are those who hear my voice. And as they hear my voice, they are therefore those who live under the truth. They are described as being of the truth. Simply, Christ's subjects in the kingdom believe the truth. They believe in Christ, they trust His word, and they live according to that word. You see, there is a, there's a division in humanity regarding truth. Turn back to John chapter 8. John 8 and verse 44. We'll just read the verse and then you'll see the context. John eight forty-four. 44. are off your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. This is again, the unbelieving Jews. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. See, this is where the division is very, very sobering. To believe the truth is to be part of Christ's kingdom. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to God but by him. But he that believes not the truth is, according to verse number 44, of their father, the devil. All false doctrines ultimately stem from the devil's lies. He's the one that denies the authority of God and the truth of God. And so those who are of the devil, they're described in verse number 45, and because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. They will not believe truth. And the very rejection of Christ by the Jewish authorities is evidence of the truth of Christ. He is truth. They, who are of the devil, believe not the truth, proving in itself that Christ is the truth. You can go and think that through more carefully in John chapter 8. You see, the challenge that Pilate faces the challenge that we all face is, what is truth? Within ourselves, we want to live according to truth. But you cannot claim to be true unless you believe the one who is absolute truth. So we close our services here today, and I remind you, pray for those who will not believe the truth. Realize the extent of their lostness, pray for God to open their hearts and minds to receive the truth and ensure that in all of your ways you submit to Christ and His Word. He came to bring light into the world and we worship Him who is light. He reveals light for us whereby we do not live in darkness. We praise Christ for His grace. Well, let's sing as we come to the close of our service here today. Hymn number eighty-eight. We'll just sing one more hymn today before we come to the close. Hymn number eighty-eight. come all ye faithful. We adore Christ today. He is in the gift of God coming into this world, coming into this world that we may know truth, truth incarnate. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. We'll stand together as we sing this hymn unto the Lord. we thank Thee, true God of true gods. Thank You for Christ coming into the world full of truth and grace. We rejoice, O Lord, that in the Savior we see the way for sinners to come to Thee. And we pray, O God, that as Christ is that ladder that ascends to heaven, so may souls in this gathering find their way to Thee through the Savior. We pray, O God, You open the hearts of those who continue to reject the gospel, we pray for your grace and for your mercy upon each and every hearer. We thank you, Lord, that again, those who are saved, we've come to see the truth of Christ. We didn't deserve this. It's all of your grace and your kindness. You opened our eyes, you unstopped our ears, and we came to hear the truth and believe the truth. And we praise you today. We thank you, Lord, that we're not what we once were, We're not what we will be, but by the grace of God we are what we are. And we praise you, Lord, for your mercy. Sinners saved by grace, take us home in safety. May your good hand rest and abide upon us. May we delight in thee in all of our ways. May this Sabbath day be a blessing to your souls. May we keep it holy. May it be a hallowed day for rest and encouragement to each and every child of God. So bless us, keep us, watch over us, O Lord, help us to leave with your favor resting upon us as we walk in thy fear. In Christ's name, amen.